4.15 a.m. Friday morning. I wake up. There's no alarm. Happens to me a lot. Just wake up. But this particular morning, Friday morning, as I begin to wake up and the new day dawns upon us, still completely dark outside, one word comes to my mind, speaks to my heart, at 4.15 a.m. Friday morning, and that one word is love. Now, it's not unusual for me to wake up suddenly like that at 4.15 in the morning, or sometimes even earlier, sometimes just 3, 3.30, particularly if I have been praying like I have been this week for God to lay in my heart what he wanted us to hear, a post-Christmas message going into the new year, what would he want us to hear, what would he want us to focus on, that was my prayer, and Friday morning, I woke up, and I felt sure the Holy Spirit was telling me to talk about love. So it really wasn't unusual when I began to pray about a message that, that happens. But what was maybe just slightly unusual about Friday morning at 4.15 a.m. that made it different than any other time is that that day was Christmas. Christmas morning. So I wake up on Christmas morning at 4.15, not in a rush like I was when I was a child. I mean, Isaac told me earlier he woke up at 3.37 a.m. And he couldn't wait to get down to the tree. He couldn't wait to be able to see those gifts. I asked Isaac, what did you do at 3.37 a.m.? I said, was everybody else up? He said, no. He said, I went down, seen the stocking, had some stuff that was ever in the stock, candy and some other stuff. And he had to wait three hours for anybody else to get up. But at least Isaac was up and anxious and ready. So when I was a child, when I was a kid in Isaac's age, I did the exact same thing. Could not wait to get up on Christmas morning. Now I'm older. I just wake up anyway. So 4.15 a.m. Christmas morning, I'm thinking of love. Love. Four letters, one word. Love. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. Because as I began to think about that word, love, I walk into the living room. It's completely dark. I plug in the tree. Our Christmas tree is about three, three and a half feet tall. We don't do a lot of decorating. We have maybe a few pictures, maybe a few ornaments that place out on the tree. It's, it's already those kind of trees you place on a little pedestal and you plug it in. It's ready to go. It's my kind of Christmas decorations right there. But in the dark, it was not happening. So I reach over, I plug it in, the lights come on the tree. Here's what the tree looked like. So at 4.15 a.m., I walk in there. Our walls are not yellow. That's the flash because it's dark, all right? But I walk in there, I turn the light on, and the Spirit begins to speak to me as the light is on, looking at that tree, and it tells me not to focus up on the tree. But it tells me to focus upon these gifts. And that's not a lot of gifts. That's basically one gift per person in our family. And the Spirit tells me, look upon the gifts. Because the gifts that's under the tree is a demonstration of our love that we have for people in our immediate family. I begin to think about that even further. And then as I'm thinking about love and those illustration love with those gifts, it's like all of a sudden, I mean, a, a ton of verses just come rushing to me. I mean, the first one that spoke to me was John 3.16. You probably know it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever should believe in him, we should not perish, but have everlasting life. But then after John 3.16 comes to me, looking at those gifts, all of a sudden I remember First John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. And then just right after that is John 15.13, one of my favorite all-time verses. It says, greater love hath no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. There's a lot more great verses talking about love. But then as all that was happening, thinking about those verses, looking at the tree, seeing the gifts, thinking about love, I began to think about Jesus. Because his gifts are under the tree, illustrating love. The gift that Jesus gave us was not under the tree. He was nailed to the tree the cross, to illustrate his love for all of mankind, for all the world. And I started thinking about Christmas then, because it was Christmas morning, begin to see that, I mean, we have the gift given to us that's not under this tree, but is given to all the world, and his name's Emmanuel. I began to think about Matthew 123. We didn't read it on Christmas Eve, but I had been reading it, and I suddenly thought again about it. It's the words also that Isaiah had written in 714. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's amazing how quick these things can come rushing to your mind and to your heart when nothing else is happening. It's completely quiet. The gift of love that we have for our family is under that tree. It's not a lot of gifts. It's one gift that each person is going to receive later when they come. We had a Christmas morning breakfast. They came, received their gift of love. But the best illustration of love, although it wasn't under the tree, is available to each and every one of us that was nailed to the tree, the cross. I was reflecting upon that, again, praying the Spirit will lead us into a message for this morning. I thought of one more illustration of love. And it happens to be today that we're looking to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, to find a wonderful illustration of a human being and their love they have for Jesus. Stand with me this morning as we do so to read this story as it's written by the Got by the disciple John, the Apostle John, in his gospel in chapter 12. Here's the reading we have for today, the Spirit leading us now in this message together this morning. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief 
and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So verse 7, Jesus said to him, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Father, Lord, we come again into your presence, Lord, just thanking you for this blessing of this day and for your son. And Lord, today we turn our attention now to this text in which we have read and received today. I pray, Lord, that you'll speak to all of us through as you have me this week, Lord, about how we can receive this text, how we can understand this text, and then how we can begin to apply this wonderful illustration of love to all of our lives. So we invite you, Lord, to lead and to guide, and can I pray that these words be expressed today will be the words exactly you want us to hear, not my words, but the words, Lord, you'll speak through me to all of us here today. So let's be thankful for what shall happen here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, I'm going to present to you what I believe the central theme of this particular text is. I'm suggesting to you that the reason that we find Mary pouring this expensive perfume upon the feet of Jesus is due to her love and her devotion she has for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. She, she places that expensive perfume at his feet, pours it on there because of her love and her devotion that she has for him. That's the central theme emerging from these eight verses that we read from the Gospel of John in chapter 12. But in order to properly understand the action by Mary that we see happening in this text, when she pours that expensive ointment, pure nard upon his feet, we need to make a few observations before we begin to apply. So let's go back to the text, start from the beginning, and realize this. First of all, the first observation is found in verses 1 and 2. When Jesus returns to one of his favorite families. This is the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. John tells us in these, in these few verses that we're reading, they live in Bethany. Bethany is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. We might think of Bethany in our day as maybe a suburb of Jerusalem, just like Oakland City is maybe a suburb of Winslow, or Winslow a suburb of Oakland City, however you want to word that. It's close in proximity to Jerusalem. And it happens to be where they are and where Lazarus and Mary and Martha reside. And Jesus and the disciples there having dinner. But also notice this. John tells us more information. He tells us the timing of this moment. He says it is six days before the Passover. Which, if by the way, if we were about to celebrate the up-and-coming Passover, that means we'd be looking to the calendar of 2021, and we'd be anticipating the Passover to occur on Saturday, March 27th through Sunday, April 4th. That's when it shall occur again in 2021. But here's the thing about Passover. Passover varies on our calendar. But for the Jewish, for the Israelite people who were about to celebrate Passover, who at that time were celebrating Passover, it never changed. On the Hebrew calendar, it was more consistent. It was a constant thing, always occurring in the month of Nisan, which happens to be March, April for us on our calendar. 
but never changed. It was always at a particular time that the Passover celebration was observed. By the way, as we're talking about Passover, maybe we should just take a quick time out and clearly understand what we're referring to as a Passover. You may already know, but go with me to Exodus 12, where the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron. And he said, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. In verse 5, there's more. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. When the house is where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is the Passover, written way back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. When all the things were happening and the plagues were born Egypt and the Egyptians, this is what we're referring to as the Passover. This is the time. This is the occasion. John takes a moment here, and his story, he's telling us about the love that Mary illustrates for our Lord and tells us not only is it happening in Bethany, but he tells us the timing is six days before the Passover and the observance then of the Israelites of the Passover. So a good question as John then includes this in just eight verses of the text that we've read in chapter 12 is why. I mean, why does John need to tell us or to the reader it is six days before Passover? That's a good question. We ask that towards the text, and the answer is this. He tells us that because as he's writing his gospel, which is considerably different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he now is telling us in his words that this is the last week that Jesus will have on earth. It is just before Passover that Jesus will be crucified on that tree, on the cross. In fact, if you get home later and you want to look through the gospel of John, past where we read, you're going to find the really next significant story is when John records, as all the other gospel writers have done, 
on the last week of Jesus' ministry on earth about the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that colt, that donkey. So for John, he's making sure that we understand about the love illustrated by Mary, but now he's also telling us about the extremely important timing of the event. He makes sure to reveal the visits to Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And all this occurs, the love that Mary illustrates for Jesus just before his death. But there's a second observation we need to find. So we go back to the text once more, again, verses 1 through 3. Notice that while in verse 2 they're reclining and having dinner, that John tells us that Martha served, which is really not so unusual, is it? I mean, what a surprise. Here they are in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Martha happens to be the one who is serving dinner. That's not really a surprise. If you know anything about what Mary and Martha have done, in their time they've been with Jesus, you know it's not a surprise that Martha is the one serving. Back in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, you find the story. When Martha was really busying herself, trying to prepare dinner for the Lord, doing everything she possibly could, and gets really upset that her sister Mary, the same people here in this story, that Mary is doing nothing but sitting at the feet of Jesus. So Martha was serving then, Martha's serving now. But observe this, we go further, that while Martha is serving, Mary gets up from the dinner, goes to get a container of perfume, and pours it on the feet of Jesus. Now, some questions begin to rush through my mind that maybe are now entering your mind, like questions like, what kind of fragrance is this? The text even mentions it was expensive. I mean, how much money are we talking about? And then lastly, I'm thinking, why pour it on Jesus' feet? So those questions begin to entertain our mind and our hearts. Let's unravel some of the answers to these questions. The first question again is, what kind of fragrance is it? Well, I'm going to tell you that this is not the most commonly used fragrance with women today. I didn't know what it was. I don't use, I don't buy women's fragrances. Sheila has some perfume. It smells good. It smells wonderful, but I don't buy it. I can't even tell you what it is. So I looked up, what is the most popular fragrance for a woman? You know what it is? Anybody know what it is? It's what? Chanel number five. Yeah. Good, Jessica. Do you wear it? You don't wear it, but you knew it. I had no idea what it was, but I looked it up, and true enough, that is the most common fragrance to women. Now, Mary doesn't have that. I'm almost sure she doesn't have it. Why would I be so sure? Because it wasn't even invented until 1921. It's wonderful the things you can find about on the Internet. You get to find out that Chanel Number no. 5, most popular fragrance with women, was made in 1921. And here's what I also found out. It is a floral bouquet of rose and jasmine with a touch of vanilla. Oh, what a wonderful fragrance. I don't know anybody wears it. You may have it on this morning. I don't know. But that is the most popular fragrance used by women. It's the most popular perfume. But I'm sure, again, Mary doesn't have it. 
So again, go back to the question, what kind of fragrance is it? Well, nobody knows for certain. But interestingly, I found through some research that scholars suggest it was highly likely it was a fragrance imported from the mountains of India, which, if true, would make it indeed unique and rare and expensive. So how expensive would it be? We'll go back to the text once more. Because Judas says in verse 5, or mentions informs us that apparently it could have been sold for 300 denarii. All right, so 300 denarii, in our language, who has a denarii with them today? You got it in your wallet, Roger? Did you give Candy some denarii? Who has some denarii? You're older, maybe you got some denarii. You going to give Mary some denarii for anniversary? Huh? Don't think so? But denarii, we don't understand it because if we don't use it today, it's not part of our coins. It's not part of our, 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 our currency. So a denarii, interestingly enough, during that day and time, was the equivalent of one day's wages. Steve drives a truck. Whatever he makes would be the equivalent of receiving a denarii. Was that good for you? All right. So now a denarii then is one day's wages. And this, he says, could have been sold for 300 denarii. So now think about this. If that perfume, that fragrance from India, from the mountains, if that's true, is worth nearly a year's wages. 300 days worth of wages. Because he said it could have been sold for 300 denarii. I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot of money then. Because as you make money during a day times 300, that's a lot of wages. That's a lot of money. And that's what Mary then pours on the feet of Jesus. Now look at George. Of course, Judas, in his estimation, it's just a complete waste. Judas looks upon Mary getting up during the dinner, going to retrieve some expensive perfume about a year's wages worth, and going to Jesus, taking her hair, anointing him with, her, with, the, with the oil, wiping down her hair on the feet of Jesus. And Judas looks at it and says, what a waste. What a waste. I'm thinking about that then. I'm thinking, well, how would I react? I mean, what about you? How about you and how you would react? And ask yourself further, if, is it a waste? Do you consider it to be a waste to spend an entire year's wages on Jesus? Would that be wasteful? As we reflect upon that question, maybe we should begin to process in our mind how we spend a year's wages. I mean, how much do we spend on our spouse, our children, our favorite hobby? How much did we spend on these gifts that was placed under the tree illustrating our love for someone just a few days ago? So is a year's wages a waste for Jesus? How much do we spend for those we love anytime or especially during Christmas the question then really becomes this what amount of love are we willing to show for Jesus because the way I read the text Mary devotes a whole year's of wages to Jesus 
And, of course, again, Judas thinks it's a waste because she takes all that and pours it on the feet of Jesus. And he says, man, that could have been sold and gave money to the poor. Which we'll come back to in a little bit. But first, again, the question was, why does she take all that? Again, if it's that expensive, especially, why she pour all that on the feet of Jesus? I mean, why not his head, his body? I mean, why the feet? Remember back in that day, I'm looking around at y'all, and I'm looking at what you're wearing on your feet, and I'm noticing anybody wearing anything like they wore back on their feet in that day. I mean, mostly it resembled some sort of sandal. I can think of only twice, and I've mentioned this before, in which Jesus was not walking on his feet with sandals to somewhere. I mean, there was one occasion which is about to happen next. Remember, in the next significant thing in this chapter, you find Jesus riding on the colt, the donkey, into Jerusalem. That's once he didn't get on his feet. The second time was when he took the boat over to see a Galilee, written in the Scriptures. Other than that, you almost always find Jesus walking and walking everywhere. So I was thinking about that, thinking about what I wear. And I typically wear boots throughout the week. Today I got a little more dress shoes on. But I'm looking around and I'm looking and I don't see anybody in here this morning wearing any kind of sandals. Mary's getting close over there. And I'm looking around trying to find anybody who has any sandals. And Penny's getting close. Oh, and you're okay. You ain't got no sandals on. And maybe Amanda. So I'm looking at shoes that people are wearing today, not finding any sandals. And here's the thing about sandals. I can't stand them. If you ever see me during the summer, I will still have regular shoes on. Never, ever will I have on a pair of sandals. I don't get it. I mean, you're walking around on the gravel, the dirt, the grass with open-toed shoes. What do you think is getting in there? I mean, how dirty is your feet getting? I don't get it. But people do it all the time. So now Jesus is walking around with these sandal-type shoes. And what do you think his feet look like? I mean, yeah, it's our Lord. And I'm sure the wonderful. But I'm thinking he's walking through dirt. He's been through some water. He's on the sand. He's all these things. And I'm sure they're a bit dungy. Okay? By the way, What do you think your feet smell like when you've been walking around all that stuff with your open-toed shoe sandals? What do you think they smell like? If you want to know or you don't know, you better ask somebody sometimes. I bet they don't smell pleasant. Wear shoes. That's not the message for today, but wear shoes. So here's Jesus walking around these open-toed shoes. Sandals. Wherever he goes. And he gets into Bethany, he's at the house, he's having dinner, Mary gets up, and probably, honestly, his his feet might need cleaning. So she gets up, takes an expensive bottle of perfume, and pours it nowhere else but on the feet of Jesus. Now, by the way, in John chapter 13, Jesus will do something very similar, not with expensive perfume. He'll lower himself to the position of a servant of a slave to wash the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper. 
that Mary, six days before the Passover, has taken a moment to illustrate her love for Jesus by looking upon his feet and cleaning them, cleansing them, putting perfume on them, with her hair wiping it, anointing his feet. What another illustration of love that she has for Jesus. And Jesus will do this almost the exact same thing later with the disciples on chapter 13. But notice how much Mary loves Jesus. Notice the illustration she has for the Lord. She takes this expensive perfume and she pours it on his feet. Number one is a demonstration of the fact she's sacrificing the whole year's worth of wages. And then secondly, she's putting herself in a position that Jesus will later uh, that servant, the slave, to clean the feet. That's love. That's an illustration of love and devotion she has for Jesus. So in our observations, we've noticed the timing that is happening. We've noticed now the wages and the washing of the feet. And now a third reaction, our, our third observation. Look at this. The reaction of Judas. We briefly touched upon it. Verse 5 is the focus. And all this is happening, he says this now. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? On the surface, it seems Judas has a genuine concern for those who are less fortunate. But John, in the very next verse, tells us, if somehow we don't already know about this betrayer, this man, he tells us that Judas is only concerned for the money because he's a thief. He's greedy. He's a money lover. That's who Judas is. Now the question now for my for me is I'm reading this story, says or asks, do you know anyone like Judas? Appearing on the outside to have a genuine personal concern for others, but really only looking out for themselves or their image? You may know people like Judas who seemingly want to do good but only really care about themselves and how good they'll look while they're doing it. We need to remember our actions speak volume. I mean, we can say that we have a concern, a genuine, caring concern for the poor, for the less fortunate, but we need to be sincere and truly offer help. I mean, the Bible says many different things about how we need to honestly and genuinely be looking and helping for those who are less fortunate. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 says, Look, each of you, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is genuous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Paul had written, or Luke had written the words of Paul in Acts 20, 35, where he says, Must help the weak. Remember the word of the Lord Jesus, they said, is more blessed to give and receive. And of course, the author of Hebrews in 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So it's good that we recognize that we need to be helping people in need, but we genuinely need to help them. Not like Judas, 
who maybe is thinking he might need to do some good, who might seemingly have some good intentions, but it's only an act. He's putting on for the others. I mean, I can think of, you know, John and James and, and, and Peter all looking over Judas thinking, man, that's a good idea. Man, he had a good idea. We should have given that maybe to the poor. Judas didn't really want to give it to the poor. He was looking only out for himself. Maybe we would have thought differently of him if we didn't already know about him through the reading the Gospels and what John tells us in the verse that he's a thief, a greedy money lover. In essence, Judas is a poser. He don't really want to do anything, but he wants to pretend he has concern for the poor. That's a third observation in the text, but there's also a fourth. It's the reaction to Jesus. Verse 7 and 8. After all that's happening, now Jesus says this, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Notice, if you will, that Judas, I mean, no, no, Jesus, Jesus puts Judas in his place and stands up for Mary. Now, to me, the manner in which I read these verses it's like Jesus telling all the other people who are there, particularly disciples, that, hey, my time is short. My departure is near. To paraphrase for me, like what maybe Jesus is saying at this moment, he's saying, look, I'm about to demonstrate. Y'all pay attention. I know Judas just said that, but pay attention. I'm about to demonstrate my true love for the entire world by hanging, being nailed to a cross and you're worried about the money that could have been sold for this perfume and given to the poor now please understand as I paraphrase that to quickly recognize Jesus is not suggesting the unfortunate should be ignored he's not at all suggesting that because in the gospels you find much evidence of how Jesus always provided for those less fortunate. During his ministries, his time on earth, he was always with people giving them miracles and help. So he's not saying ignore them. But what Jesus is doing, because he knows the scriptures better than anybody because he is God in flesh. So he's actually using a reference that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 15.11, which says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, if I command you, you shall always you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. I mean, he knows the scripture. He knows what he's saying. He knows it's a reference to the Old Testament. And what he's saying, the world's going to have poor, but you're not going to have me very much longer. By the way, a lot of times living in America, we don't recognize how truly blessed we are. I mean, yeah, there are those less fortunate in our country. But even those who are of less fortune in our country are still among the richest in the world. So now Jesus is saying this, the words of David Jeremiah actually maybe explains it better when he says, you do not always have me. He says, Jesus' way of saying that he represented the impoverished, as Isaiah spoke of them in Isaiah 53, not that he is replacing them as a more worthy recipient of the funds. He's simply saying, look, there's always going to be people who have less fortune. Things are going to happen. 
but not much longer will I be with you. So leave her alone. Judas, just leave her alone. Marriage is simply honoring and praising and if you worshiping Jesus at this moment, showing him some love and her devotion. So we've unraveled a story, found four observations that we've elaborated upon in the text. The timing, that expensive nard, perfume, ointment. We looked at Judas's reaction. We've seen Jesus' reaction. So we unraveled all that to tell it like a story. He said, okay, Pastor, that's all fine and wonderful, but you ain't got yet to the application. Well, here it comes. In the words of Dr. McKellar, my preaching professor, we have in-loaded application. Here it is. How can we apply all that? Four ways. Here it is. Number one, make the time. Each and every day make the time to show God your love and your devotion. Every day we should make time. To show our love and devotion. Remember very early in the message. We said the central theme. Was that Mary was doing all this. Because of her love and the devotion she had for Jesus. So then all that now. To come full circle to say. How are we. Expressing our love for Jesus. Do we do it each and every day. Or when we only have something happen. In which we're thankful. We got a blessing. Let's thank him. Let's recognize him. Let's show him our love and devotion because today we're blessed. Every day we're blessed. Every day. So every day is a good time to be able to show Jesus our love and devotion. Now, naturally, this time of the year, we get all excited about receiving the gift. But actually, we end about receiving gifts and exchanging gifts it's not about the gifts placed under the tree it's always about it should always be about this time of the year about the gift that was nailed and placed on the tree so in being the recipient we're all the recipient of that gift it goes back to the question we should be asking ourselves every day of how are we expressing our love and devotion to that gift given to us they were recognized this time of the year Every day we should make time to show God our love and devotion. You know, one thing we haven't really touched upon in this text is the fact that, well, we've observed how Jesus is at Bethany at the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But notice how it also mentioned that Lazarus, just in case somebody can't connect the dots, is who Jesus had brought back from the dead. Yeah. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So in return for that great miracle, look now how Mary, well, Mary is with Jesus, but Martha is cooking this big dinner. But in essence, what they're doing, they're saying, Jesus, we recognize what you've done, and now we're going to invite you to come to our house. We're going to make you this great dinner, you and all the men and people with you. It's another sign of love and devotion. That you're taking to honor him. Yeah, you got the expensive perfume. You got, you got the, the, the wiping of the feet. I mean, you got all these things happening. But notice how they also made him dinner. 
If Jesus was here right now, would you invite him to dinner? Take the time to show God your love and devotion. Show your gratitude, your thankfulness each and every day. That's one application. The second is this, that it is more important to be occupied with Christ than to be occupied for him. Again, we go back to how we observed that Martha, to no one's surprise, is serving dinner. She's made the dinner. She's serving the dinner. All right. Someone has to do it, right? Someone has to make it. Someone has to serve it. It happens to be Martha. It seems to always be Martha. But focus again upon Mary. Because now Mary, once again, shows that she would rather be with Jesus than to be occupied for him. I mean, basically, that is a reminder that we should not ever become too busy, especially during the hectic, frantic time of Christmas. During the holiday time, we can become always so busy doing whatever we're doing, but we should never, upon any time of the year, become so busy that we forget to be with Jesus. Spend time with him. I mean, I know people who do a lot of things for Christ that is actually forced, but their heart's not really into it. But we should all want to do something for him, but be with him. Do something with him and for the love of Jesus. I mean, it's a true blessing to be able to serve him. Yes, we need to serve him. But we also need to recognize to set aside a time to be occupied with him, be with him, be with him, not just doing something for him. That was Mary. Third application we find in the text. Give Jesus your best worship. We explained and elaborated upon expensive perfume. It's not Chanel number five. It's something from India, perhaps. But she took that perfume that she had from a year's worth of wages and she poured on his feet. Which reveals to me she did not hold anything back. She gave her very best that she had for Jesus. A year's worth of wages, no concern for Mary. Not worried about it. I'd rather he get it, I'd rather Jesus get it, than me receiving it. It was all about him and nothing about her. She chose to worship Jesus. She chose not to be concentrated upon the perfume, the family, the hobbies, anything else. It was all about him. She gave Jesus her very best worship. And the application of the text is that we need to do the same thing. And fourth and finally then, application. Do not be selfish with your blessing. We go back to Judas. I mean, Judas portrays himself as a noble man, concerned for the poor. But John tells us pretty quickly, don't let Judas get by with that, y'all. He says he's a thief. It's a front. It's a facade. He don't really care about you. It tells us that we, too, should be careful about wanting to look good. We should give, we should give, and we should give, but we give to others from a caring heart, not because 
We want to look good or to get a tax deduction. Give to others out of the love for Christ. He truly demonstrated his love for us, and we should honor that love by loving others just as Christ loved us in them. If you will, in the case of Judas, it truly sounded noble when he said that. When he questioned it about the cost of it and said it could be given to the poor, it truly sounded noble. But people sometimes use the most religious-sounding reasons to justify their most selfish actions. We could rephrase this one to say this. Don't be a Judas. Be a Jesus. Don't be a Judas, fake, artificial, a front, a facade, but be a Jesus. Be real. Be genuine. Four types of application we find today from a story we look at that I suggest to use all about love and the love that Mary has for Jesus. We observe how she chose the most extraordinary, incredible way of showing her love and devotion. So it would behoove all of us to then to follow that example that Mary has. I mean, we are about to go into a new year. Forget all about 2020. It's been a horrific year for a lot of people. Look ahead into the new year. What is the best way to go into the new year? Sheila was talking to the kids. What is the best thing we need to do if we dare make a resolution? Practice and illustrate love for others. First and foremost, illustrate love for Jesus. Love Jesus. And then love people. Remember the gifts placed under the tree when you seen the picture earlier? It was our family, Sheila and I's love we have for our family. Place those little gifts under the tree. But the closing message really is, we need to hear this morning, is shouldn't we then take the same amount of time to show the world how much we love Jesus and how much we love others? That should be what we desire to put into practice and reality as we approach this new year. Show your love for Jesus. To people who are indeed watching. Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord, thanking you for this message that you placed upon our hearts today to receive. I pray, Lord, for all of us to show a genuine love and concern for each other, but first and foremost, Lord, for your, your son, Jesus. So we thank you for the message here this morning. We thank you for how it speaks to us. I pray, Lord, now for each every one of us as we begin to let this past year go and look forward to the new year. It would indeed let love guide, lead, and direct. Thank you for this message this morning and for the way we can apply it. In your name we pray. Amen.